2: The start of Urban was actually just a fluke. What does it take to run the business that you've got today? It's a bit of a headache. I'd look at someone and say, you can't be a victim of growing too quickly. I really understand what people mean there now. It was the worst anxiety I've ever had. It's quite obviously an
1: Urban. It's almost like they are talking about a completely different product.
2: Oh, it's cool. And what has been the toughest point? I suffered with real bad panic attacks. These guys would see me come in and I'd be like zombified. Your head is probably the, the worst place for you to be sometime. 83% of the negative comments come from the UK. We're typically a, a negative nation. We're quick to criticise. We don't embrace people doing well. This sounds like your biggest hurdle so far in the journey. We just can't grow to the level that the brand needs us to grow to.
1: Simon, welcome to Road to Success. My podcast conducted in the back of a modified VW Crafter van, which you have just referred to as the bang bus. <laughs> but I thought you might like being sat in the back of a modified vehicle. However, today I'm going to get straight into it and yep. ask in your own words, who are you and what do you do?
2: I am Simon. I am the CEO of Urban Automotive, and we make modified cars. And that company,
1: which in the building behind us sells some of the best-looking SUVs, and now you've broadly gone into many other cars, Rolls, Royces, Bentleys, Lamborghini, that I've ever seen. We saw four Urbans on the way up here, let alone on the roads, and your brand is becoming synonymous across the UK. And we've just discussed it actually last year, achieved over $100 million in revenue. But as much as we'll definitely get on get on to talking about urban, Yeah, what I want to understand is how somebody gets to that position. So I'd love to start with your early years. And as a first question, I'd like to ask, what was life like growing up and what did you want to be?
2: Wow. I didn't think you was going to take me back that far. <laughs> I thought we was here to talk about urban. Um, Wow. When I was younger, very, very moderate growing up. My mum and dad split when I was two, uh, and I grew up with my mum and my stepdad. We lived in a council house locally. Uh, my stepdad ran two jobs, and I, I just vaguely remember everything just being like normal. You know, there was no extravagance. It was just, you know, birthdays and Christmases were like cherished, the gifts that you got, and things like that. So, yeah, really like moderate, you know, just a normal. Council boy, really. What was your first memory of a car? Um, you know what? I, I wasn't really into cars when I was younger. When I was a when I was a kid, I was just like Star Wars and sci-fi mad. I wasn't I wasn't actually into cars themselves, you know. So I wasn't one of these kids that could tell you what F1 drivers were or, you know, like things like that. Um, and the first car that I got, I think it was a like a red. Ford Escort Um, then I had a Mini and and you know what even before I was in the car industry like 20 years before I was in the car industry every car I would get I would do a little bit too you know whether it was repair it and sell it but I was always trying to buy and sell cars and trying to buy something at an okay price run it for six months and then maybe sell it a little bit later
1: what is it with genre, you, Milton I mean? Keynes boys? We were here last week, <laughs> literally just round the corner with yeah. Uh, Calvin. Yeah. Um, Calvin's car diaries, basically, yeah, around yeah, the yeah. corner, and it was exactly the same thing. He's like, you know, just wheeling, dealing cars, uh, flipping oh, them on, on the I'm side, a, trying like, to make them. I'm a, not an alpha daily. I'm not a wheeler <laughs> dealer. I'm, I'm a definitely fuck. not a wheeler dealer. Uh, but what was your first steps in terms of career then? You mentioned a fairly um, normal upbringing. You're into Star Wars, but you weren't that really into cars. Yeah. So when I uh, did a little bit of
2: research, it seemed like IT become a huge part of your life. So what did your career IT, like? IT was like the second step, really. Um, I did a HND in design at, at college. Um, so I actually did design prior to doing what I do now. Um, and sadly for my mum and dad, I actually dropped out right at the end. Um, I got an offer of a job in a shoe shop. Yeah, <laughs> a shoe shop.
1: Yeah. So, so dropped I dropped out to
2: go and work in the shoe out, shop. I dropped out of design to go and work in a shoe shop. I was a bit stupid at that time, and I just saw was them. this like Clark's or was this like Nike or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably something you wouldn't even remember. It's a shop called Dulcis. Which was a shoe shop in like in like the nineties. God, I'm sounding old now. Um, yeah, I went and worked there. i just kind of just I, I, I just saw the money really, and you know what? The money at the time was probably only like four or five hundred pounds a month. It was like it was nothing. Uh, and then I went through a couple of other shops. I went through a, a, an electronic store called Tempo, and then um, Currys, which obviously is still here today. So during all of that time. I, I did a lot of retail work and it was just about trying to get paid early on you know um so in your teens at this point you're into your 20s where uh, you? teens yeah yeah late late teens sort of like 18 19 sort of time just starting to drive trying to you know get the pennies together to to buy cars and things like that and go out and <laughs> modify them and- yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and then i actually ended up going into it I got offered a job in uh, somewhere in Milton Keynes and that kind of led me on to my it career uh which took me down to um, Watford to a company called Storm, which was basically like an IT reseller. So selling from business to business, which was a lot nicer than the retail element because dealing with people's, you know, dealing with company to company is a lot easier, a lot easier sell. You know, people working with companies' budgets rather than their own pennies is, it makes it a it's lot a easier. a lot more emotional when it's dealing with Oh, it's completely. Uh, so obviously I came out of that and went back into retail. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when you say you come out of that, because there's a big gap there and we won't touch on it too much, but I'm guessing you start your own
2: business in IT after no, I that was actually was you always I, working? I was actually a minority shareholder at, at this company. I was kind of like my last business partner's right hand man. I was sales director. He was MD. Uh, we grew the company, you know, to quite, it was quite a big company. I think it was about 120 staff when I left. I mean, I just, you know, we we split amicably. I just wanted to go on to pastures new, and obviously, changing industries is is quite a nice thing because sometimes IT is is it's known for people coming out of one IT job and going into another and trying to steal customers and things like that. So it was quite nice for me; it was refreshing to come out of IT and do what I said I was going to do and stay friends with previous business partners because, you you know...
1: Because they were kind of looking like
2: that. Like, yeah, I mean, he... I think people are obviously, you know, when you say that you want to change a direction after, you know, 18 years of working together, it's quite a long time. So I think people think probably the worst that you're going to try and do this and try and steal that. And, you know, but I didn't. I just went into cars and, and did what I said I was going to do.
1: So was Urban the first company you ever started? Yes,
2: Wow. That's quite impactful. And where, where
1: on that journey did you kind of discover that you had an entrepreneurial flair and you wanted to start your own business?
2: To be honest with you, when I worked at Storm, I was always, I was always that way inclined. I was always trying to do new things in IT and, you know, bringing different products together and, you know, sales programs. And, you know, I, I paid a real big part of growing that business, even though I didn't own majority shareholding, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'd like to say that I'd I, Gave a lot to that business to grow it to the company that it is today, but for me, I just wanted something for myself, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And cars just kind of dropped on my lap, really. So it wasn't like you're still
1: not this a um, car nerd. You're just like oh, not... I've always modified cars. What was it that you saw that that flipped that switch?
2: I mean, the the start of Urban was actually just a fluke. You know the the plan was to leave it and. And just be an automotive dealer. You know, I'd saved up a small amount of money to set up the company and started selling cars with my then business partner at the time from my house. And I don't know whether you've ever bought a car from someone's house, have you? Exactly. That's what I mean. No, yeah. No. See, people just don't want to buy off a car someone's drive. Off someone's drive. And we struggled, you know. I think we bought about 10 or 15 cars and the neighbors hated me because there was cars parked everywhere and it was all over the drive. It was just, it was just a mess. And every car we bought, you know, it started off with three grand of profit, went down to two, went down to one, ended up a loss and we weren't really getting anywhere. And it wasn't until I sort of stumbled across buying a Defender and, Thought I'd put some trick bits on it at the time. That was that was the that was the mentality at the time. It was just like, ah, maybe we can you know make this a bit more desirable. So that was pre like urban being a brand and thinking that's
1: what you were going to do. You yeah. just thought actually to try and get one of these cars sold that I've got in stock,
2: I'm going to jazz it up a little. Exactly bit. that, yeah. And what when you saw the finished product, you thought this looks sick. So to be honest, at the time there was there was like stand the old style Defender. There was standard Defenders, and there was a company called Twisted. Uh, You've probably heard no, of them, yeah, you know, I've they're they're, they're kind of like the kings of the old Defender, you know, modified world. But the price point between Standard and, and what they offered was really significant. And I kind of looked at it from a commercial perspective and not actually, from no other way, just to say, if I can pitch something in between here and make it more, and make that look more affordable for, you know, the the buyer. And that was basically where it came from. I was like, well, if they're going to add £40,000 onto a car and I can do it for 5 surely there's some sort yeah, of margin, a in, margin in between. And I think off the back of that, I think we done 350 of the old-shaped Defenders before run-out. So, you know, we was buying, 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 buying everything we could. It was
1: 2012, 2013, I
2: read, when Urban was kind of set up and going. Yes. Uh, so we set up late 13. Um, and I think the end of the Defender production run was around sort of 17. The last of the plates were sixteen, um, so we, you know, throughout that duration, that you know, we sold quite a lot of.
1: That's a lot of cars. Like a to, lot of cars, to, yeah. to, to scale up to that, I'm really fascinated in how you got from doing one to 300 <laughs> yeah. something,
2: and what that looked like. Well, did it feel like life was just a total whirlwind when you were going through that? I mean, at the time, we used, you know, I mean, me and my business partner there, I, I didn't know anything about cars. I just took one apart on the driveway, you know. So we just took the Defender apart, put it back together. I think we must've put out some howlers of cars early on because we weren't skilled mechanics, but what we did, we used like local garages for the mechanical element, you know, like suspension and things like that. We outsourced that, but then just put the grills and vents and things on ourselves. It was almost like utilizing the the businesses around me to cobble is probably the right word, cobble these cars together and, a badge on the back you know get them out the door yeah
1: so then when did that develop into
2: having your own premises seeing it as a brand the name urban well once we'd sold a few defenders from the house because they did actually sell okay i think it must be something about an old defender <laughs> buyer outside. that didn't, didn't really care <laughs> they didn't really care you know um, and we got a small unit just around the corner, like 3,000 square feet. So that managed to get about, I don't know, like 10 or 12 cars in there in build at any one time. So it was almost like one in, one out. Um, I'm not saying it was easy. Not everything sold retail. We did have some external sort of like trade partners that we would, you know, build cars up in different locations. So we had some people up north that would sell our product as well. So we was I, would, I tried to bring across the IT commercial brain that I had and sort of plop it into the car industry. That was that was my thought mentality, you know, you know, to have trade yeah. partners, retail partners taking different margins from, you know, that's probably the way we got to the volumes because Not everything sold to retail because we sold some to trade and some to retail It enabled us to keep the numbers up, you know.
1: But today we see you with, as I mentioned at the start, a completely growing model range that doesn't always just focus on Land Rover.
2: So what was the next vehicle after the Defender that really set you alight? Was it the Sport? It was the Sport. Um, At the time that the Defender went end of life, we could have decided to just be a, you know, a, an old Defender modifier. I could have kept six or seven staff and we could have just poodled along doing those. But I didn't want to do that. So we kind of used the money that we made from all of those Defender sales. And it was the first time we'd put money into like doing our own tooling, which is obviously really daunting because you have to invest, you know, circa hundred £150,000 to just make two replacement bumpers. I'd never done it before. We made so many mistakes. Wow. Yeah, a, 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 you know, to tall a bumper with design, you know, is 75 to 100K, you know. So it is it is a lot of money and a lot of risk, especially at the time we didn't really have a brand. You know, we'd done these urban truck defenders, but trying to get a, almost like a prestigious sport customer to buy into your brand that you've just tinkered around with old you know, old 90 and 110 defenders. It was it was quite a hard thing at the time.
1: And it sounds like holistically, you were pretty much doing everything or have done everything as part of that business from the tooling, from selling the vehicles yeah. to actually assembling the bumpers. So you've got quite of a, a wide understanding of the business. It's quite nice because when you talk about your career in IT and how you've used some of those skills and brought them into the industry, just the first thing I saw today when we went in your unit was actually someone with a laser scanner scanning a bumper yeah. to make sure there was absolutely no imperfections on a new
2: design for the latest range. Yeah, I mean, vehicle. I, I think when you look at things like that, obviously, when we finished our R and D work and we put the first car together, you always find things that pop up, and you know, you don't want a carbon bumper bashing on the, the paintwork and chipping the paintwork, and a customer coming back, you know, in two or three months, and then suddenly you realise you've done fifty cars, and you know, the same thing's going to happen with every car. I guess we're like a manufacturer in that sense that. You know, you, you you probably know what it's like when a manufacturer has a recall and they've got tens of thousands of cars out there. You know, for us to have it with hundreds of cars, it's a significant impact on the workshop because we have to prioritise warranty work alongside our builds as well. So you, you mentioned at the beginning, everyone was
1: bringing their cars to you to become modified. Yeah. So someone would take their car, come to Urban and say, can you put the kit on it? Yep. At what point did you actually start purchasing vehicles to then put out the door?
2: We 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 purchased right from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, we, we always run a, a stock car um, element alongside a customer conversion element, and I th- I think that's really where the business that was the risk we took with building cars tentatively for stock. You know, a lot of people that buy our product are completely and utterly impatient. They want they want the product now, and if they was to come in and say, you know, when can I have an Urban Range Rover, and we say six months. They want to come in and say what's available to drive away today, and and that was really, you know, that was part that was one of the bigger parts of the success of the business to to, to offer that to people,
1: which is challenging. When you mentioned to me, don't actually have a brilliant relationship with the main
2: manufacturer that you use. Do you want to go into that a little bit? <laughs> um, I I think with anything, you know, I'd love to sit down with the designers of all brands that we work with, um, and try and convince them that we're not one of those dirty modifiers, you know, it's, there's there's a, there's a stigma with vehicle modification and it probably goes back to the, you know, the max power era where people were sticking, you know, planks of wood on the back of their car for spoilers. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm dumbing that down slightly. Putting an but exhaust on it and it blows the engine on a yeah, Ferrari or something it, like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. So I'd love to show them around what we do, show them our manufacturing, show them the fact that we do it all in house, show them that it's handmade. It's hard to to get time out of those guys. Obviously, all they see is us defacing their product. But I would always argue that our client base is completely net new business for them. You know, someone who's a buyer of a urban Lamborghini Urus is not necessarily a buyer of a standard Urus. They're completely different. You know, and i like to think that Even in the small numbers we do, you know, circa four or 500 cars a year, I'd like to think that we add some value to the brand and not, we're not just a hindrance, you know, because we do, we do buy product we do sell products and we do capture customers that they simply don't. Because I remember I'm lucky enough that in the past
1: I've had an urban SVR (laughs) yeah, and the interesting thing there is I said urban SVR, not Land Rover. Range Rover Sport, oh, and it's done up by Urban. Like, yeah. and I think I relay what you're saying there because everybody I've ever s- spoke about is, oh, I saw an Urban 110 down the road. Yeah. And it's almost like they are talking about a completely different product so that person's not like, oh, I saw a 110. I don't think they necessarily buy a 110. It's like, oh, I
2: saw an yeah. Urban 110 on the road. I want an Urban 110. You know what? There's a story behind that as well. So we, the majority of people call it an Urban SVR or an Urban 110. But when we market our product... We have to call it a Defender 110, redefined or modified by Urban. It's not our product. It's been highlighted to us that it's it's not our product, so we cannot <laughs> name it an Urban blah, blah, blah. Right, but people say. <laughs> like, I, can't <laughs> control, I, I can't control what people say, but from a marketing perspective, we don't own the rights to that product, so therefore it is a 110 modified by Urban. And do people like uh, Lamborghini and Rolls-Royce have the same viewpoint
1: as, say, Land Rover?
2: Uh, each manufacturer is slightly different. Um, obviously, they're all very, very aware of what we do, and and I hope that they follow with a, and a smidgen of respect that we try and do things properly. We or try tastefully. Tastefully. You know, our ethos is OEM+, plus, so we try to make cars look like they came out of the factory like that. Almost like a extended edition of what the manufacturers can't do, and when I say can't do, there are, there are elements of what we do that manufacturers just simply can't do because what we're appealing to is a very very small customer base that they probably wouldn't invest at all in into you know doing more extreme models that we that we focus on. And away from that, you also have got an online store, my correct, that sells some yeah. of the modification bits so
1: that if somebody wants the light bar or those individual bits you spend money on, you can actually sell those people to people to modify their vehicles as well.
2: Yeah. Obviously we have our online store. We've got multiple revenue streams, you know, new and used car sales. We've got uh, our international dealers around the world. We do recommend that all of the items get installed in a like a in, in a professional environment environment. Yeah. But Obviously we can't control that when someone's buying something globally. That
1: must be a tough decision because that is that is your brand, that is the quality that I mean, you only have to look at a company like McLaren and yeah. see that bad qual what well, bad quality and panels that don't line up has done to their reputation. That must be quite a big thing to
2: actually allow other people to fit parts. Yeah, it it is, and we do see some bad installations. You know, we see bad installations of other brands that come in and, you know, some some people that do fit our parts incorrectly. The only thing that we can do is advise, give all of the right installation videos and manuals. But that's I guess that's the risk you take when you when you choose to sell parts. So
1: how many cars a year are you buying
2: from a manufacturer that doesn't necessarily like you? Um I mean, across the board we probably buy anywhere between $4.50 and five fifty. So, yeah.
1: do, do you? Because I assumed that you'd be telling me that you had a direct relationship to the factory. No, just no it, it, you I, literally have to go through like Land Rover, Milton
2: Keynes, and wherever. Yeah, uh, and there's also rules with that as well. You know, when we're ordering a car, it has to be for an actual person. It can't just be for stock. You know, we buy used cars in the open market to to build used cars, but you know, there's there's rules about the way we can buy vehicles as well. So there's we, no discounts? No. No discount. Oh,
1: that, that is, is that is not part of where <laughs> no, you want to go with no, the business model. No, not really.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think with one Land Rover dealer before COVID, um, obviously we was their biggest customer. I think we did over a four-year period, we did maybe £100 million of, of Land Rover product. And then when COVID hit, they just turned the taps off on trade completely the new rules came in none of this none of that due diligence was like at its highest you know you couldn't buy a car without it being for an end user with the driving license with all of the id that went with it you know they only wanted to sell cars to retail customers only that was it it all went out the window
1: so does this this sounds like potentially your biggest hurdle so far and the journey is actually just getting hold of vehicles. Honestly,
2: it was like, it was the worst anxiety I've ever had. We went into COVID and I think I had about seven million pounds worth of stock at the time. And I was like, you know, it was like, what am I going to do? No one's going to want to be driving anywhere. Yeah, so obviously, you know, like everyone, it was, I'm not not saying it was just bad for me, it was bad for everyone that period. And when we went into sort of the first lockdowns, we were kind of allowed to operate a distance in, in the, in the workplace. And I think we had like two technicians in like 500 meters apart from each other, one salesperson and me, <laughs> Uh, and at first, it was like a fire sale. I was thinking, we, we've got all of these cars. We're going to have to get rid of them. I was selling them at cost. And like, yeah, I think we cleared out of about 10 cars. There's a couple of lucky customers yeah. out there then rolling around like zero interest rates You, you, you probably urban. know where I'm going with this. Our interest rates were really low. And we was like getting rid of cars at like, I thought I'm going to have to clear out of the stock and we're going to have to ride this through with no stock. And then suddenly... Because everyone was at home, they just had yeah, money want, they, and they wanted, yeah. Well, everyone had a Seabills loan, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the amount of people spending the government's money on cars, everyone started to want to buy a car. And suddenly the prices went from, you know, like heavily discounted fire sale to, to premiums and everything. you know G-Wagons were fetching 40,000 over list for standard cars i mean what you know the the downside to that is if you bought during that period when you went to sell you know 2 years later you was obviously very very underwater on your car you know so we've we've gone through an emotional roller coaster which is actually settling now you know discounts are returning you know slightly you know 3 to 6% across cars so we are in a position now where I think we'll get some normality with the exception of finance rates, which are just Stupid. crazy now. Yeah, they,
1: they, I thought they'd have come down a bit by no, now, but they're still they have, not. Yeah, and it's, it's ridiculous. But do you think then, after hearing that, that if you actually had support from Land Rover and the brand and had a direct relationship with them being proven what you've currently done, yeah. that you guys would be in a different position?
2: You know what? I don't think so. Like I said earlier, I've always worried of, I used to worry significantly about car supply you know and we w- we would get to a point where the the goalposts changed with brands a little bit by a little bit and as we edged towards covid they got were you know it was you can we we've got supported terms and then we didn't have supported terms then we just had discount and then we could just buy for stock and then we couldn't buy for stock then we had to buy for a cut it was almost like they they clipped at they kept clipping our wings over a period of time and every time that happened, I was like, you know, like arms in the air. like, we've lost supply, we've lost supply. What we're we gonna do? It's gonna put us down and all of the rest of it. And then I got to the point and thought, you know what? It, now it just doesn't worry me, you know, because what will be will be, and there's always cars out there. There's always someone that's got the right product for sale. There's always some. There's it always. It always comes good. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you know, I can't say anything else apart from that. I really, really worried early on. I was thinking, car supplies our key, but there's so many cars out there. It's just, it's fine. So we spoke a lot
1: about supply vehicles, how yep. Urban has began, how it's got to kind of where you are at the minute, and COVID being a huge factor in the business. But a business is always built around the people in it. Yeah. I think it's fair to say one of the most recognizable faces at Urban is yeah. Lenny the Geezer. So <laughs> do you want to tell the audience about how the hell you met Lenny the
2: geezer? So I mean, at the time, obviously, like everyone, I just I followed him on Instagram, you know. He was a guy that did funny videos. Of Course it sounds like they're talking about your partner you have met. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. Yeah, we were dating back then. <laughs> no, he obviously he, he had a big following on social media. Um he at the time he was good friends with Yann, um Yanni from Yannamise. and we'd started working with Yanni uh, a little bit before I met Lenny. Yeah, so I'd started working with uh, with Yann probably maybe a year, 6 months to a year before and We took a bit of a risk at the time. We'd just bought out the Range Rover Sport kit and the traction was okay, but not really where we wanted it to be. So I decided to just give Yanni a car. Um, He was the biggest influencer in cars at the time and I kind of reached out to him. It it was really odd because one of my best friends at the time, his son, messaged me and said, why don't you offer Yanni a car? I was like that. That's a good idea. I didn't even think of it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the most pivotal point of what we did was suggested to me by, you know, one one of my good friend's sons. And I reached out to Jan. I think I sent him a, an email at like 11 o'clock at night. And it was just like a bit of a heartfelt email. Look, like, this is what we're doing. This is, you know, we're new kids on the block, la, 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 la. And wonder whether you'd be interested in driving one of our cars around for a year sort of thing, you know, just we'll, we'll bring it down to you. And about ten minutes after I sent the email, I, my phone rang. I was like, "Ah!" He was like, "He was like, ah, I like that." He said, "You sent me an email at this time of night." He said, "You're obviously working at this time of night and all the rest of it." And we got chatting. I went down to see him the next day, and I mean that you know we just blew up. Then at the time, Instagram was really algorithm based everything that you did with you know if you referred a friend or tagged a friend and all, all of that you know like that whole like and tag thing was just so big. Exploding Jim Sharp was going on at that curve I, as well. I can I can imagine and we um I think we was on about four or five thousand followers at the time. We took the car to Yan. He promoted the hell out of it and I think I was just refreshing. I was like twelve thousand 17,000, 24,000, it was like at the time, yeah, it, that's was how just it was bonkers. It was just crazy. Now it's te- it's terrible. It's so hard. It but going back to Lenny, so obviously Yanni and Lenny were, were were good friends at the time. They used to go to car shows together and Lenny was obviously making really funny videos. Um, it's a shame that he can't still do those, but some of them were obviously a little bit to the mark. And he just said to Jan one day, you know, I like what Urban are doing. It'd be great if I could work there. Jan, he introduced the two of us. And at the time he just said, look, I don't know really what I can do for the company, but I've got a big social media following. You know, we can maybe reach out to customers with that. And I guess the rest is history. He's kind of like, he's my right hand social you know, sales. He does, just does a bit of everything really. You, you know, guys are
1: it, together. That's where I actually met you. Um, as part of the Petrelenism group that went out to SEMA this year. Um, and what's but I was like, Simon, I like him on the podcast. <laughs> so I asked Lenny kindly who I don't really know why. Um, I think weirdly, you mentioned that you gave Yanni that urban range. was that the one that he wrapped rose Gold at yes, some point. Yes, it was, yeah. Because I remember before I had yeah. a driver's license, I went to a supercar driver meet at Topaz Detailing. Yeah. And he was actually there with that car. And I think that's where I met Lenny probably nine years ago.
2: Yeah. And for
1: some reason, I think Lenny followed me. And we've just kept in touch over the years and always said hello to each other at events, yeah. which was kind of how it was easy to get an introduction to yourself when we we're over at SEMA. Yeah, it was um, a lot nicer
2: over there, weren't it? It was it's, a lot nicer. It was cold and there. horrible here. It was lovely in, <laughs> in so, America. <laughs> you
1: mentioned Lenny is obviously. See um, a fundamental person within the urban brand, but yeah. there is a lot of people that I've just seen buzzing around behind you. What does it take to run the business that
2: you've got today? Oh, well, we've got 105 staff now um, over five sites, so it's it is a headache because we've grown organically, and like any company that's grown organically, we've taken real estate when we could take it in different locations, and it's a bit of a headache. Because we manufacture in one area, we warehouse in another area, then we make plastics in another area, you know, and it all sort of comes together in HQ where I've just showed you around. But that's the biggest, you know, nightmare for us that we're so ingrained in the units that we're in. The ideal for us would be to up everything and just it into 100,000 square foot space. I'm
1: really shocked about Simon, to be fair, because we're in Milton Keynes, yeah. which is known for being one of the most industrial areas of the UK. You yeah. only have to drive along and it says 100,000 square foot site. This, so is it actually really challenging to find the right place for you around here?
2: It, I mean, commercially challenging, yeah. Obviously, you know, when you move out of five units that you're, you know... Got different leases. Different it, leases, or... you know, and, and trying to come out of that, your dilapidations... You know, and then to open up a facility to house all of those businesses, the the half a million we've spent on one goes in the bin because you've got to decommission that and you've got to spend it on the new one. But then when you put it all together, it's in the millions, you know. Our expansion plan can't be 10 or 20% now, it has to be it almost double. And the problem for us is just the sheer cost of that, you know. So we're that's the biggest pain of our business, really. We, I never really thought I'd look at someone and say you can't be a victim of growing too quickly but I actually I really understand what people mean there now we're you know frustratingly we're at a point where demand out outstri- demand far outstrips our ability to you know, deliver product to customers.
1: And do you have to manage that? Because it'd be so easy at that point to just stick your prices up and become, I remember back in the day when I used to, you know, be one of those people that probably followed you during one yeah. of those refreshers and the main names out there were Overfinch, yeah, um, Khan, but they were known for being unbelievably expensive and that, that everyone could kind of tell that urban didn't quite sit in. That's what they were
2: going to charge people. I still, I, you know, we, we, make handmade quality product, but I still believe in value. You you still want to drive away and not think I've just, someone's just had my pants down. You know, it's not, it's not a great feeling. So, so for me, you still have to get a feeling of getting some kind of value from a, from a business. You know, we could make less and put our prices up, but that's not what we're about. You know, we're trying to give a customer something that's a little bit nicer than, are you, are you a football fan? <laughs> I used to be. I was a season ticket holder at Man United for seven years. So what's it like when you saw Marcus Rashford driving an urban SVR? Oh, it's cool. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I mean, you know, we've, we've done some really, really cool customers. You know, we get to meet some, we don't get to meet others, but they're, they're the little perks of the job where someone that's has a real choice and, you know, they can pick any brand that's my point they could have picked any brand brand, And
1: in that early day where you had to give a a car to get some traction to say Yanni and you've now got Marcus Rashford purchasing a vehicle from yourselves and not only Rashford do you want to list off some of the people that you've met down here I've seen all sorts of it there was a very infamous
2: one that I remember actually (laughs) I know what you're going to say yeah you know exactly (laughs) what I'm going to say and it was very pink yeah so there's been some various reasons why I've done a few different things obviously giving a car to jan in the beginning made complete sense he was the biggest car influencer at the time you know and and i'm so glad i've done that not and not even for the commercial gain because he's become one of my best friends you know i'm godfather to his daughter and we've got the strongest relationship ever so there's some some alternate positives that come out of doing something like that. You know, we've got we've had a nine-year relationship and we've never said a bad word to each other. We've never crossed words. But then you've got things like doing a pink car for Katie Price. (laughs) And I guess I knew it was going to be in the news. I just knew it was going to be in the news. You know, we painted the car, we put glitter in it, you know, we put glitter in the paint. It was a, a big that wasn't, oh, that wasn't a wrap. No, no, we painted it. We, <laughs> we, we painted the car pink, and we put glitter. We sprinkled glitter in the paint so it sparkled in the sun. And we just knew it was going to be in the paper. You know, when she came to pick the car up, the paparazzi were there outside, and it, and I knew it was going to get some traction. So, yeah, we make these decisions, you know, based on what we think that we'll we'll get out of them. And as I mentioned, we met at SEMA where you
1: had a stand with two vehicles on mm. Rolls Royce Ghost, yeah, and uh, the new Range Rover, yeah. So is the US a big part in Urban's next
2: steps? I think it has to be. Um, I wouldn't like to say we've wrapped up the UK, but we we do have quite a you know a, a well respected and you know dominant name in the UK with with modification. The Defender's been fantastic for us. We must have done maybe 3,500 defenders in the UK, you know, from a modification perspective. The US is obviously a different animal. You know, the you, know, you see when you go to SEMA, the amount of cars and people, the following, you know. Size. The that's, size a, that's the thing that in, just baffled me. In every city, there's, you know, in LA, there's probably 20 car meets on a weekend. It's, you know, we're, we're lucky to get one every three months here. It's completely different. And, and I just think the next step for us has to be, working on the U S improving our distribution network out there and, and getting more product into, you know, the, the, the big car scene cities out there. Plus it's sick. (laughs) You know what the, 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 the thing for me with the U S is that it's a lot more positive than here. You know, there's a lot of negativity here. We've done some algorithms on our um, Instagram and 83% of the negative comments come from the UK. You know, we are, typically a i wouldn't say depressed depressed is probably the wrong word but we're typically a a negative nation nation and we're quick to criticize we we don't embrace success we don't embrace people doing well you know you see it in the cars we talked on the way and you said everything's black and gray because everyone wants to play it safe people in the uk buy a car based on the resale of the car you know they're buying a car with black with black leather because they know that they'll get more money when they sell it. They're not buying a car with in green with tan leather because it's their favorite. They're more worried about what they're going to lose on the car than than getting the full enjoyment out of the car itself. And that shows in the US because you get crazy colors with different interiors and, and people are really flamboyant. And, and I think that's what the brand misses. You know, when we're doing media each week, there's only so much of the same Defender, 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 or Black or Grey that you can follow. As soon as we do a crazy car in the US, social media blows up, YouTube's great, views are great, and it just has a real big impact. And that makes me actually
1: see how well you've done with something in the UK, to be fair, because me and uh, Steve, you say, today we were talking on the way up, and in the UK, normally if you modify a vehicle, yeah, it just the value just shits itself of the vehicle, basically. Like people go, oh, you've modified that. Like, that's not been stock. What have you done to it? Where in America, it seems to be like, you've modified that. I'll pay you for modifying that. That's amazing, man. They've just got a completely different mindset. They have got a different mindset,
2: but we we have bucked the trend with that in the UK. I I, I think our vehicles are on average a a 14% above cap in the used market. It is known by every finance company. It's known as our vehicle. So they do give... Higher residual values on on those cars, and they do hold them, you know. So it's not like a mod one of our modified cars in the used market actually gets less money. It it does, you know, still fetch that premium. So with a brand that we've mentioned. Turned
1: over over $100 million last year. Your cars are at SEMA. You've sold over 3,500 offenders. You've been going since 2013. Your partner, which has become one of your best friends, has literally got a venue inside your unit. It looks absolutely amazing, the journey, and from people following on social media and watching the videos. And it just seems like, not that it's easy, but everything's just brilliant all of the time. (laughs) (laughs) What's been... The best moment on this journey
2: and what has been the toughest shit you've had to deal with? The best moment was probably when you saw me a few weeks ago. Um, not when I saw you.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> sorry. what am him a drink. <laughs> No, it, 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 it was the best moment because I'd, I'd had my eye on working with Platinum who are one of the premium sort of like installers in the US. They've done a, a lot of high profile celebrities. Um, they do amazing work. Their bes- the bespoke nature of their work is they're always taking modifier's product and just adding their little twist to it. So so it's almost like bespoke on top of bespoke. I had a, a, a real bee in my bonnet to work with them, and I sort of started on that a couple of years ago. Rather than just continually try and email them or text them and you know reach out to them that way, after SEMA two years ago, I just jumped on a plane and went and went to LA. And I almost felt like a little bit of a like a window salesman, you know, knocking on their door and just, you know, saying, look, this is what we do. Let's work together. And over the last couple of years, really built that relationship up. And it and it almost, it just came to a head because they built the two SEMA cars for us. they have done a fantastic job. The launch blew up. We sold so many kits at the show. So I'm like, you know, it was a real grateful point for me to, you know, almost like, for someone to say, actually, we like what you're doing and we've got you, you know, we, you know, we'll work with you over here and, and be you over here. And what has been the toughest point? I guess the toughest point, you know, the toughest point is probably now because, you know, without sounding like we we don't have the level of money to grow the business at the rate that we need to grow it at. You know, so like I said to you earlier, 10 or 20% growth just won't, you know, we we would get 10 or 20% more space and it would just be eaten up with no actual, no additional value. Every department needs to grow by double, you know, so if our manufacturing needs double the space, if our, you know, trimming area needs, and so on and so forth with all of the different departments, we just, you know, it's, it's a real, it's really stressful in the fact that we just can't grow to, the level that the brand needs us to grow to. And how do you manage that stress? Um I didn't manage it very well, you know, during the mid years, you know, five or six years in, you know, COVID hit and, you know, like I said earlier, it was really, really up and down. I was always worried about car supply. And I've just, you know, as I've got older, I've just learned to control my control my mind a little bit more. You know, I suffered with real bad panic attacks for a long period of time where I couldn't breathe, I'd wake up in the night. I used to almost like sleep like a baby and wait like a baby, you know, I'd go straight to sleep, but then I'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't be able to get back to sleep till in the morning. And these guys would see me come in and I'd be like like zombified, you know, because I'd just be thinking about things all the time. And I think I just, I got to a point where something that someone said to me resonated with me. Like, can you do anything about it? No, don't worry about it then. Can you do something about it? Yes. You don't have to worry about it then. So, both both ways. If you're if you're a little bit of a passenger in something, then what's the point in worrying about it? And I, I guess I would just done a lot of work on myself and tr- you know tried to rationalise the way I think about things, and now I don't worry about things too much. So you really worked on your mindset since COVID, and that's made yeah, a big yeah. Difference. It was yeah. It, like I say, it was your head is probably the the worst place for you to be sometimes, especially when you're under a lot of stress and things like that. I'm content that we've got the brand to the point where it's well-respected, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. I haven't got anything to prove to anyone anymore. You know, the proving part is done. You know, now it's just the management of how we steer, you know, steer the brand through the the next 10 years.
1: Because I, I think that it'd be um, great to just touch on that as we kind of come to a close, because people might be a little bit confused because they're like, well, hang on, you're selling more vehicles than ever and your problem is you need to grow faster than ever. But that is where I I'm, I'm think I'm right in saying that most businesses pretty much fall over with a cash flow issue when they just got the ability to grow so fast. Yeah,
2: And then they look in the bank one day and go, we ain't got no money. That's <laughs> right. And, and you know what? You know, with any business like this, the, the cash flow goes up and down. It's like a yo-yo. But the the level of outlay to grow to where we need to grow to would put the brand in significant risk. I'd have to, you know, I'd, I'd almost have to use every bit of cash reserves to grow to the level we need to grow to. And I mean, some people that run businesses are risk takers to that level, but I would never mess around with 105 people's jobs. That's more important than, you know, I'd rather tick along It's probably a, a dumbed down word, but I'd, I'd rather move at the pace that we move at.
1: Put it on a scale. If if ten is like um the ultimate business risk taker willing to yeah. risk anything and, and zero is just tick, tick, yeah. tick. Where would you pitch yourself? I'm dead
2: in the middle, you know. We we make some decisions when we shouldn't. You know, if we make a mistake on a on a design of a of a bumper, you know, if it costs us a hundred thousand pounds to do what we think needs to be done to put it right in the market, then we'll do it, you know. Some people would be a little bit pig headed about what they've done. You know, we we developed the and we bought it out and the front bumper was terrible. I got completely battered online. You know, I almost felt like I can only liken it to when BMW bought the big kidney grills out and, you know, the M three or four or whatever it was at the time was released and it was just like a barrage of I did, like, s- I did shit, see that it shit, that shit. Yeah.
1: London taxi springs to mind. Yeah, that
2: sort of yeah, and and I looked at it and I was already thinking in my mind, I wasn't hundred percent happy with it. And then when we released it, you know, the barrage of abuse came in and I came in the next day. I was like, oh, I don't care what it costs, we've got, we've got to, we've got to put it right. And we did, and we've sold, you know, probably 60 or 70 Cullen since. So, you know, the the numbers on a car like that is just like it's just crazy. You know, I didn't think we would sell 15 kits, let alone that many. If you could have said something to Simon, when he began Urban doing the Defenders.
1: Yeah. Now, what would you say?
2: God, I don't... Everything's happened because it's happened. So I I can't really go back and say, you know, oh, you should have done this or you should have done that because my decisions and with my business partner, they're speculative, but they're also reactive as well. You know, we're... Our decisions are now governed by who brings out what car next. Are we going to modify it? Is it good enough? Can it hold the value of modification? Can there? you get one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's right. I mean, we've we've got a target list of cars in front of us. And and really, if if manufacturers didn't continue to bring new cars out, we wouldn't have something to work with. You know, that's probably one of the riskiest parts of our business because it's governed by how good the cars on the market are. Do you have a desire to be the biggest modified
1: manufacturer in the world? 100% yes. Do you think you'll be the biggest modified manufacturer in the world?
2: Yes, I think so.
1: It will be close. Simon, thank you for coming on Road to Success. I really enjoyed our (laughs) conversation today. That was brilliant. Thank you.